Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 2nd of June for the listening week that begins the 3rd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First article is from theroot.com and is something a little bit different from their black hair section. This written by Angela Johnson. It was published back in April on the 17th. Louisiana woman holds the record for largest Afro. Ivan Degas, Degas pardon me, has been growing her beautiful fro for nearly 25 years. Look out, Angela Davis. There's a woman in Louisiana out here rocking an afro that could give the entire Jackson 5 a run on their money. Avon Dugas currently holds the Guinness record for the largest afro on a living female. Dugas first earned the title in 2010. Back then, her afro measured 4 feet 4 inches in circumference. Now, 13 years later, her beautiful head of hair has grown to a stunning 9.84 inches tall, 10.4 inches wide, and 5.4 inches in circumference. The 47-year-old says she's been growing her fro for 24 years, a journey that started with a desire to stop using chemical straighteners and rock her natural hair. which leads to an article from blackenterprise.com posted more recently, this one on June 2nd, written by Ataya Jordan. Dr. Nadia Lopez talks upcoming Brooklyn hair fest designed for youngsters. Dr. Nadia Lopez, founder and former principal of Brooklyn's Mott Hall Bridges Academy, is breaking more ground to the bridge to brilliance with what she's calling Hairfest. She is aware of the costs for being a legacy of a disruptor of the education system, yet she holds a superpower that incites love, wellness, and healing above all else. From global TED Talks and college lectures to building a platform for educators. On Saturday, June 3rd, Bridge to Brilliance, a nonprofit organization created in 2020 by Lopez and Monique Achu, presents Hairfest. Celebrate hair, culture, and community for free at PS11. The Purvis J. Bien elementary school located in the Clinton Hill neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, for those in the neighborhood. What began as a safe space for young girls to share the root of their pain spawned additional programs geared toward young boys and the public. Now all genders from K-12, through as well as the community, can come through for a weekend activation. Ahead of the event, Lopez told Black Enterprise that Hairfest is a labor of love for educators, students, and parents. 
Classrooms will be filled with opportunities to discover what's possible for them in various fields, including leadership, entrepreneurship, wellness, storytelling, and art. Lopez explained, self-esteem dictates how they present themselves, oftentimes in our school. A celebration of crowns, from relaxers to black and brute pardon me, black and blue color rinses, Lopez can recall exactly where her hair story begins. My cousins and I, for hours, would just love on each other, doing each other's hair. It would take all day. We did that for each other. We didn't have hair care products that would really maintain your hair or your natural curl pattern, so we did what we could with what we had. And I just missed seeing that with young people. They're by themselves trying to figure it out. In the spirit of sisterhood, the upcoming festival is not all about hair. As a principal, Lopez recalled what a difference it made by having black rubber bands in her desk or by understanding how bad hair days affect a student's attitude. When I became a principal and I noticed that our girls couldn't afford to do certain things, but they weren't leaning on each other to help each other out, it made me sit down with them so I could tell them the stories about what it was like for me and my cousins, recalled Lopez. A celebration of community. There's power in numbers, in fact. Lopez is proud to have leaned on an intentional community to kick off the festival that she calls a love letter. Natural hair care brands and organizations have even stepped up to join and contribute through workshops, book donations, and more generosity. Some of the participating brands include Tracy Ellis Ross's Pattern, Crayol Essence, Palmer's, and more. Lopez says proudly, we're not one of the bigger names, but we do have big impact. Powerful trailblazers will also share their expertise while representing for the young girls and boys who aspire to follow their dreams. They include natural hair master pioneer Diane Bailey, Elori Taylor, Vice President of Eden Body Works, Natasha Gaspard, founder of Maine Moves Media, Sabrina Boissier, founder of Natural Partners in Crime, and former NYS Assembly member Tremaine Wright, who spearheaded and co-sponsored the Crown Act getting passed in New York. A celebration of culture. Culture influences a child's development from the moment they're born. Parents and educators have the power to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline, HairFest is just another opportunity to learn how to create much-needed connections that are open, honest, and inspiring for the purpose of educating youth of color in the perseverance and resilience, overcoming obstacles of daily life. The suicide rate for our young people, especially boys and girls who are black, has increased exponentially, said Lopez. It's really because of how the media makes them feel like they are not worthy. We always see the images of us getting slayed, our curriculum not getting incorporated, us not getting represented. She added, 
The rejection is often for your protection. Lopez challenges educators to actively engage in social and emotional learning because, quote, every one of us is a bridge that could be a connection for our young people to manifest their brilliance. Hairfest is also designed with families in mind because it aims to foster intergenerational conversations within the home. Lopez is a proud mom who loves sharing experiences with her daughter. She told BE, Black Experience, I mean, pardon me, blackenterprise.com, that she has designed most of her programs with her daughter in mind and through the eyes of her inner child. Turning back to an article published on April 19th from theroot.com, written by Chanel Janai, Taraji P. Henson provides mental health sessions to HBCUs. Her new partnership with Kate Spade recently kicked off at Alabama State University. Golden Globe-winning actress Taraji P. Henson has always been a woman for the people and a woman who is intentionally about mental health. Pardon me, that reads, who's intentional about mental health. If it wasn't evident through her popular Facebook Watch series, Peace of Mind with Taraji, then allow her latest partnership with Kate Spade, New York, to do some further convincing. Speaking in a new interview with InStyle, the Empire star dished on her new initiative with the popular fashion brand and her mental health-centric Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, which seeks to create more access to culturally competent mental health resources for women and girls by jointly launching the first-of-its-kind program on HBCU campuses across the country. Henson's Foundation and Kate Spade first joined forces back in January 2022 when she announced, as a founding member of Kate Spade New York's Social Impact Council. The council is comprised of, pardon me, of influential women who, quote, champion the integration of mental health into the empowerment agenda of women and girls globally and are experts in the field of mental health and women's issues locally and around the world. The initial launch for this new initiative officially kicked off at Alabama State University, where they unveiled She Care Wellness Pods, which will provide free mental health virtual and in-person therapy sessions for women students experiencing an exacerbation of stress, anxiety, and depression. Hangout spaces will provide psychoeducation sessions that allow students to connect with peers and mental wellness professionals to address students' specific challenges, and self-regulatory practices including yoga, meditation, art, sound, and dance therapy, all provided by certified practitioners, continuing workshops and seminars on a variety of student-requested topics, and rest pods for silence and respite to reset from daily stressors. Henson explained to InStyle, we prepare these young women to get their diplomas and degrees, but we're not preparing them. They have all these dreams, because I was once in school, and I was like, oh my God, once I get my degree, I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to make a whole bunch of money. 
but no one was telling me about the disparity in the job and the pay. No one is telling me about the disparity in health care. We want to prepare these women for everything to expect in the world or what they don't even expect in the real world. She later added, I have shared and been open with my struggles because I feel like I know people are suffering in silence. And I feel like the more we talk about it, the more people feel they're not alone. For more information about this initiative and the resources available, they have a website. First, I'll read it, then I might spell it. Boris L. Henson Foundation.org. That's B O R I S L H E N S O N Foundation. F O U N D A T I O N. That's all one word. Boris L. Henson Foundation.org. Next one was posted June 1st at blackenterprise.com from their arts and culture. Black female-led dance company celebrates 12 years. Will make history at Chicago's largest blues festival. I do not see the name of an author for this. Anarissa Lanette, the founder and CEO of Praise Productions, Incorporated, PPI, and that's spelled P-R-A-I-Z-E which is a Chicago-based dance company and arts organization, has much to celebrate. Lynette's company reached an impressive milestone, celebrating its 12th anniversary season this year. And now PPI will also participate in the inaugural Millennium Park Residency Program, MPRP, joining three other highly respected cultural organizations. The program, organized by the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, offers resources and a platform for select organizations to showcase their work during Millennium Park's vibrant summer season. On June 4th, PPI is scheduled to captivate a sold-out audience with its unique fusion of dance and storytelling on the iconic J. Pritzker Pavilion stage. Under the guidance of an esteemed black female leadership team, PPI is dedicated to giving voice to the stories and experiences of black artists through their work. By maintaining strong connections to the community and fostering social consciousness, PPI's influence extends beyond the stage, inspiring future generations of artists and changemakers. The organization consistently provides high-quality performances rivaling those of non-minority-led dance companies. The company's dedication to its craft has resulted in outstanding success and recognition at both local and national levels. We at PPI feel incredibly privileged to be part of the first-ever Millennium Park Residency Cohort. Being a black-led organization hailing from the south side of Chicago, we can't help but feel that this is a truly special chance for our city and the world to see the amazing talent that our community has to offer, said Lynette. She went on, Our hearts are deeply committed to working towards giving a voice, platform, and opportunities to professional artists of color, and we couldn't be more excited about this journey. Praise Productions Incorporated will present a one-of-a-kind photography installation called 
the rhythm within our blues. For this year's Blues Festival, it incorporates life-sized photographs depicting the history and authentic culture of blues music through the lens of professional photographers of color from Chicago's South Side. They include Amber Green, Seed Lynn, and Tony Smith. Festival goers can expect to be imaginatively transported to Bronzeville, Chicago's Blues District, and witness images of historical landmarks, blues artists, and much more. This new addition to the Blues Festival, the largest festival in Chicago, adds to the artistic richness and deep appreciation of blues music and its greats. The festival runs from June 8th to the 11th. Through the 11th, I believe that is. Next one written by Stacy Jackson, posted on June 1st, still with Black Enterprise. Columbia University rolls out first installment of Obama Presidency Oral History Project. Researchers at Columbia University are capturing the legacy of Barack Obama's presidency. The first installment of a new Obama Presidency Oral History Project was recently announced. CNN reported that panelists discussed climate change and the environment throughout Obama's presidency, starting from the former Illinois senator's initial campaign up to the 2008 presidential election. The project involves research dating back to 2019, conducted by Columbia University's Insight Institute, which gathered 470 interviews and nearly 1,100 hours of audio and video featuring officials, activists, organizers, and others involved with the Obama administration. The project's mission is to, quote, decenter the experience of the president and center the study around the experiences and interactions of people both inside and outside of the administration, according to Insight Director Peter Beerman. We pushed very hard during the campaign to raise the climate issue, environmental activist Francis Beinecke said, and we raised it during the primaries, and then, when he was the candidate, we raised it. During that period, we also worked on the platform, on the Democratic platform, making sure that climate was a main feature of the platform. Climate narratives in the first installment discuss issues that include the Keystone Pipeline, food security, and international climate negotiations, such as the Paris Agreement. The overall project will tackle nearly 40 issues, including health care and black politics. Interviews pertaining to the additional topics are planned to be released over the remainder of the year and into 2024. According to Inside at Columbia University, the special preview of the study features 17 interviews with White House official Carol Browner, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, school teacher Sarah Holway, EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson, and Farmers Art and Helen Tanderup. Next article written by Eamon Milner, posted June 2nd. The Irony. Black-owned company leads revitalization of former Robert E. Lee statue site. 
The controversial statue of Confederate leader Robert E. Lee was taken down after the murder of George Floyd. Now, a black-owned company, WEM, no, that, pardon me, that's YME, Landscape in Richmond, Virginia, has been hired to revitalize the site and usher in a new beginning. Owned by Earl Gary, YME Landscape began working on the site earlier this month with plans of planting 6,000 varieties of plant life and over 25 trees. However, the shadow of what was is not lost on Gary, who finds deeper meaning in the moment. I think it's very unique, the odds of me getting in a position like this, he told the Richmond Times-Dispatch. I'm really grateful to be given this opportunity to perform with all of the history that comes with it. Historical context aside, the job is also a massive undertaking for YME, which opened in 2007. I've been doing landscaping for a long time, but I don't think I had too many jobs where I had to plant 6,000 plants, the 47-year-old Gary said. The city approved the temporary landscaping plan in the fall of last year to refresh the empty space until a long-term solution is reached. There has been no word on what can potentially replace the former monument to Lee. For Gary, however, the occasion is in line with why he started his company after leaving a career in electrical engineering. He said, A lot of times when I was working in engineering, I was pretty much the only minority working there. I learned really quickly, am I ever going to get that junior executive position or senior executive position? I'm not saying I couldn't, but the landscape didn't look the same to me as someone that's not in the minority. What initially started as an avenue to create sustainable growth for himself professionally has turned into a thriving business. And next, also written by Iman Miller, Milner, pardon me, written, um, start over, Iman Milner, and this was posted June 2nd. ESPN and the NBA continue to champion black businesses for a fourth year. The NBA and ESPN, one of the league's television partners, will participate in the fourth installment of the Champion Black Businesses Initiative, which was founded in 2020. The initiative showcases black businesses across all of ESPN's platforms during and around the time of the highly viewed NBA Finals. In an effort to make up the losses sustained by black businesses due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which began in 2020, the NBA, ESPN, Andscape, and ABC will use the bright lights of the NBA Finals to spotlight black-owned businesses and foster sustainable community impact. Each company receives a 30-second film about their brand's story, which is broadcast across ESPN platforms during the finals. All of the businesses will be included under the hashtag Champion Black Businesses in hopes that fans will engage with the initiative and take time to learn about each brand. In addition, each business will have the opportunity to receive one-on-one mentorship with Shark Tank's Mike Cuban, who owns the NBA Dallas Mavericks. Robert Hervachik and Barbara Corcoran. 
Champion Black Businesses continues to evolve and grow, and we're excited to launch year four. ESPN's Vice President of Sports Marketing, Emeka Ofodile, said in a release. Black businesses are the heart of local communities across the country, and we're committed to leveraging the power of our sports media platform to drive positive impact in those communities. Seeing the impact this program has made in the past three years fuels us to do more, and we can't wait to get to work with our 2023 businesses. Some of the companies included in this year's initiative include Her Growing Hands, a natural hair care experience in Dallas, Dressed in Joy, an athleisure brand in Brooklyn, Kiddo, a kids' boutique with a focus on representation and inclusivity in Chicago, and Pietesserie, an upscale dessert brand in San Francisco. And next from Black Enterprises Celebrity News, posted June 2nd, written by Cedric Big Seed Thornton. 27 years after his tragic death, Tupac receives a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Tupac Shakur will receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame June 7th, according to the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. It is the walk's 2,758th star, Shakur will receive the honor in the recording category. Tupac Shakur was a rapper, actor, activist, poet, and revolutionary. This iconic artist has continued to be part of the zeitgeist for decades after his passing and will continue to be an important cultural figure for many years to come, said Ana Martinez, producer of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, in a written statement. She added, Surely as one of L.A.'s own, Tupac's star will be added to the list of the most visited stars. The MC of the event will be iHeartMedia Radio personality Big Boy. Scheduled speakers include movie director Alan Hughes, who directed the latest Tupac, pardon me, Tupac docuseries, Dear Mama, and Jamal Joseph, Joseph the Professional, Pardon me, the professor of professional practice at Columbia University School of the Arts in the film department, is the author of Tupac Shakur Legacy. Tupac's sister, Segiwa Set Shakur, will accept the star for her brother. The ceremony and setting for the star will be at 6212 Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood. For those who want to watch the ceremony live, head to walkoffame.com. The ceremony starts at 1.30 p.m. Eastern at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. This is the latest posthumous honor for Tupac. In April 2017, he became the first solo hip-hop artist to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a first-time nominee. In just five years, Tupac sold over 75 million records worldwide. In April 2023, the city of Oakland announced there will be a street named after Shakur, and according to People magazine, the renaming will occur on MacArthur Boulevard between Grand Avenue and Van Buren Avenue. In a unanimous decision, the city council voted in favor of the new street name, Tupac Shakur Way. 
The legendary rapper died on September 13, 1996, after being shot inside a vehicle six days earlier after attending a Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas. Once again, that will be happening on June 7th. Turning back now to theroot.com for some more articles that have been posted earlier. This one was written by Stephanie Holland, published May 10th. In loving memory of MTV News, the only news show that tried to be fair and fun to all young people. As MTV shut, pardon me, as MTV News shuts down, we can't forget how it influenced a generation of young black activists and fans. For Gen X, in the 1990s, there was one crucial place to get the most important news of the day, MTV. If you're only familiar with current-day MTV, I know that sounds crazy. But once upon a time, MTV News was the place for unbiased, reasonable stories on issues that young people were genuinely concerned about. Kurt Loder was Gen X's Walter Cronkite. He's the one who told us about Kurt Cobain, Notorious Big, and Tupac Shakur's deaths. Choose or Lose demanded that we pay attention to politics. Loder, John Norris, Tabitha Soren, Allison Stewart, Suchin Pak, Sway Calloway, and Chris Connolly gave us a diverse news team long before it was the trendy way to get viewers These correspondents didn't talk down to their young audience. They informed us about important issues and made it easy for us to understand why we should care. No fake news. The facts weren't skewed in one specific direction. They were presented in a simple yet interesting way. Paramount Media Network's Showtime and MTV Entertainment Studios announcement that it's cutting 25% of its staff signals the end of an influential era for an entire generation, as MTV News will shut down. Those people who are doing everything they can to change this dumpster fire of a world we currently live in took their first steps into activism thanks to MTV News. It started with Loader hosting The Week in Rock, But as the network and its programming evolved, so did its news division. As it became clear that politics was something the network could no longer avoid, MTV made sure to set itself apart from mainstream outlets by specifically tackling issues that its young audience cared about. Climate change, the environment, poverty, gender identity, Sexuality and race were all prominently featured before the rest of the media world caught up. Biggie and Tupac got their flowers. When Biggie and Tupac died, MTV had the most balanced and humane coverage. The correspondents knew that these were real people who their audience idolized, so they treated them as more than just rappers who got caught up in a violent beef that went too far. They were Christopher Wallace and Tupac Shakur, young black men who left behind grieving families and fans. For MTV's audience, it was about their lives and legacies, not their deaths. Goodbye boring news. Personally, it showed me that journalism didn't have to be this stuffy medium that only allowed old white men to have a voice. 
This is the first place I learned I could be a journalist and be myself. Great as they were at their jobs, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, and Peter Jennings weren't speaking to me and didn't know what mattered to my generation. This is why Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton all made a point of doing MTV News specials during their presidential campaigns. The network had a fan, pardon me, the network had a fan base that couldn't be ignored and pushed aside. I'm clearly not the only person who was a little emotional about the end of this era as social media was flooded with people recognizing its importance and lamenting its demise. Next, written by Jessica Washington, published May 10th. Did Eric Adams and other New York leaders fail Jordan Neely? Fear-mongering from a lot of our elected officials and law enforcement leaders helped lead to Neely's death, says Vera Institute's Julian Harris-Calvin. It's been a week. This was written on the 5th of May. Pardon me, the 10th. It was updated on the 10th of May. I'll start over. It's been a week since Jordan Neely was killed by a white ex-Marine Daniel Penny inside a New York subway car. The 30-year-old black Michael Jackson impersonator was held down by several passengers and choked to death while an onlooker filmed. Jackson, who was unhoused, was screaming that he was, quote, hungry and thirsty shortly before he died. Amid widespread grief over this senseless tragedy, some New Yorkers have felt that city leaders, including Mayor Eric Adams, failed to properly condemn Neely's killer. Adams' initial statements focused almost entirely on Neely's mental health and not on the fact that an unarmed black man, who witnesses said had not harmed anyone, was killed in broad daylight. Julian Harris-Calvin, director of the Greater New York Justice Program at the Vera Institute, says that Adams and other city leaders have done more than just missed the mark. Their actions helped lead to Neely's death. All of this fear-mongering and misinformation that we've heard from a lot of our elected leaders and law enforcement leaders around crime and violence in the city has really led to these kinds of really tragic events like Jordan Neely's death, said Harris-Calvin. Rather than take a compassionate approach to dealing with homelessness and mental health, Harris-Calvin says the Adams administration has pushed a jail and law enforcement first approach. If the messaging was sympathetic and empathetic and really addressed the nuances of homelessness and mental health concerns, she says, folks likely wouldn't feel so threatened that they felt they needed to take this kind of physical force against someone that they saw who was clearly mentally unstable. Local politicians, including New York City Council member Tiffany Caban, have shared similar sentiments. This is the inevitable outcome of the dangerous rhetoric of stigmatizing mental health issues, stigmatizing poverty, and the continued bloated investment in the carceral system at the expense of funding access to housing, food, and health, said Caban in an interview with Politico. In a statement to The Root, Mayor Adams responded to the critiques by expressing sympathy for Neely and his family. 
He said, This is an incredible tragedy, and my deepest sympathies are with the Neely family. Jordan Neely's life was tragically lost, and his family and our city are dealing with the emotional impact of this matter, wrote Adams. At a press conference on Wednesday, Adams announced a summit on mental health. He also clarified that Neely's mental health was not, quote, the cause of his death. Harris Calvin says that the problem extends past rhetoric, flooding the subways with police signals, pardon me, flooding the subways with police signals to people that they're unsafe and need to defend themselves, she says. Parentheses, New York City actually has a lower violent crime rate than the national average. The billions spent on cops also takes away from spending on resources that could have actually benefited someone like Neely or a passenger trying to help him, she says. If we had put that money into housing people, giving them supportive services, having peer workers, who cost a lot less than police officers, had them on the platform doing outreach and connecting people to services, says Harris Calvin, maybe Jordan Neely, Nearly, pardon me, I think this is a typo. Maybe Jordan Neely wouldn't have been in the condition he was in. Another spotlight on mental health. This written by Patia Braithwaite and Tiffany Graham. It was posted May 25th and comes from the New York Times. The Toll of Police Violence on Black People's Mental Health. Three years after the murder of George Floyd, the Times spoke to more than 100 people about the ongoing psychological strain. When a black person is killed by the police, Carsanya Wise Whitehead watches the footage, even though it causes her physical pain. Derek Benson reviews the details of new cases to try to understand what might have happened to his brother, who was killed in police custody. Marisa Renee Lee describes learning about an instance of police violence as being akin to getting, quote, punched in the face in a place where you've already been hit. Three years have passed since the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, but while the widespread protests against police violence in the United States have quieted, the pain black people experience when a police officer injures or kills a black person persists. Black people in America are killed by the police at three times the rate of their white counterparts, and the number of deaths has remained consistent from year to year. Victims and their families, as well as bystanders, are often psychologically scarred by these events. But there is evidence that the millions of black people indirectly exposed to police violence are affected also. In a 2021 study, researchers examined emergency room data from hospitals across five states, finding a correlation between police killings of unarmed black people and a rise in depression-related ER visits among black people. It's hard to measure the individual toll these events take on mental health, The New York Times dispatched reporters in more than 20 U.S. cities to interview 110 black people across generations and socioeconomic groups about how acts of violent pardon me that's how acts of police violence affect them the times also commissioned morning consult a polling company to survey black adults in the united states about what they feel and how they cope 
when they learn that a police officer has hurt or killed another black person. While more than half of respondents reported feeling ongoing sadness, anger, and fear about police violence, the survey also found that black people feel more safe than unsafe when they see a police officer. Parentheses. As the numbers below illustrate, a portion also report feeling anxious when they see an officer. Many people the Times interviewed shared personal experiences of excessive force and harassment by the police. Others talked about well-known cases, like those of Rodney King and Eric Garner from years ago. These stories are not exhaustive, but they illustrate the myriad ways black people in America grapple, often quietly, with continuing threats of police violence. There's always one case that kind of sticks with you, said K.T. Kennedy, 28, a youth and community organizer from Brooklyn, New York. I feel like we're all specifically haunted by one murder, at least. And the following are some of those results. 44% of black adults say it's harder to get through daily tasks after learning that officers have harmed a black person. 38% of black people said they feel anxious when they see an officer. 79% of black parents said police violence affects their mental health. 69% of black adults cope by talking to a friend or a family member. 22% discussed police violence with a mental health care professional. Slightly more spoke with a religious leader. 71% of black adults say their ability to cope has stayed the same or gotten worse over time. And they have some scattered quotes from the interviewees. From a cultural broker in Somali-American Parent Association in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Anissa Ali, who is 39, says, I'm taking care of my mental health because I'm privileged that way. I'm meditating. I'm talking to a therapist. I'm reading books and listening to a podcast. I have friends. We get together and we are all single moms with black sons. We form a support system. And from Carsonia Wise Whitehead, 54, professor of communication and African and African American studies at Loyola. I do watch multiple times. For the first few days I am unable to sleep. I find that I am more on guard and more likely to take offense. My entire body feels like it is in pain I am stressed. From Malcolm Claiborne, 16 and a student in California. Sometimes I wave at the officers, the police officers, pardon me, to show them that I'm a nice bystander. They usually don't affect me. And Greta Willis, 59, a retired Maryland correctional officer says, I lived in a fog for a very long time. I thought I was in a dream, in a nightmare. Her 14-year-old son was fatally shot by a police officer in 2006 after she called to get assistance for him during his mental health crisis. And from Marissa Renee Lee, 40, a former deputy 
of private sector engagement at the, pardon me, at the Obama administration. She says, I try as much as possible when these things happen to create space for grief and to give myself permission to grieve. Next article written by Jessica Washington. It was posted on the 2nd. What year is this? In Mississippi, the fight for school desegregation continues. Decades after Brown v. Board, the DOJ announced that 32 school districts in Mississippi are under desegregation orders. Over half a century after the landmark Supreme Court decision Brown v. Board, one would hope that the term school segregation would be a vestige of the past. But in the heart of the Deep South, the fight to end school segregation is far from a bygone era. On Thursday, the Department of Justice told the Associated Press that there are currently 32 school districts in Mississippi under federal desegregation orders out of 144 school districts in total. If you're not a legal scholar, or frankly even if you are, you might be wondering what this means. A desegregation order is a plan that has, quote, been ordered or submitted into the federal or state court that remedies or addresses a school district's actual or alleged segregation of students or staff on the basis of race or national origin. A school district remains under that plan until, quote, the court, agency, or other competent officials finds that the district has satisfied its obligations. So, in case anyone was curious, it's not a good sign to be under a desegregation order, and Mississippi is a pretty bad offender. In 2017, the Cleveland, Mississippi school district was in the spotlight after years of litigation. The school board agreed to end their practice of having one white and one black school after nearly 50 years of litigation from the DOJ and outside groups. While it's worth highlighting Mississippi, it's certainly not the only place in the nation with a practice of perpetuating, pardon me, perpetuating racially segregated schools. In fact, as of 2017, roughly 70% of all black children in the country went to schools that are highly segregated by race, according to the Economic Policy Institute. And a report from the Civil Rights Project in 2021 found that school segregation in New York for black students was the worst in the nation. Most school segregation is far less explicit than the standard practice before Brown v. Board and Brown v. Board too. But the Supreme Court has continued to chip away at any tools that could be used to promote school integration. And at this point, with the exception of some renewed efforts at fixing the problem from the DOJ, it doesn't look like we're trending in the right direction. Next, also written by Angela Johnson, published on the 2nd. Students at Amanda Gorman's alma mater fight for her band poem. Students at New Roads School in California read The Hill We Climb, pardon me, that's read The Hill We Climb, and wrote letters of support in response to a recent ban at a Florida school. Amanda Gorman made news and history as the youngest inaugural poet when she wrote The Hill We Climb for President Joe Biden's 2021 inauguration. Two years later, her poem is back in the news as Daily Salinas, 
a parent of two children, had it removed from a Miami-area elementary school for including what she believed to be, quote, indirect hate messages and, quote, references to critical race theory. But while Gorman's work is caught in the crosshairs of a conservative temper tantrum, students at Gorman's former school are showing their support for one of their own. A group of 11 elementary school students at New Roads School in Santa Monica, California, recited The Hill We Climb at an assembly last week. And on June 1st, first and fourth graders at the school wrote letters of support to Amanda Gorman and the students of Bob Graham Education Center in Florida. The letters will be shared at an all-school meeting on Friday, June 2nd. Making sure students have access to Gorman's poem is important to New York, pardon me, to New Road's head of school, Lutheran Williams, who was a black man. As he told The Root exclusively, he believes reading is one of the most important ways to allow children to hear diverse perspectives, and why it's a key component in his school's mission to prepare young people for life by developing a personal dedication to learning, a respect for independent thinking, an expanding curiosity about the world and its people, and a commitment to the common good. One of the foundations of the education at New Roads is to develop critical, informed, compassionate citizens, because we think that's fundamental to democracy, and we think that democracy doesn't work unless children are educated and they understand various perspectives. One of the means by which that happens is through books, he said. Books open up the world for children to be able to understand themselves and to understand others and understand how to make democracy work. Reading is the road to liberation, and that is a right for which our young people know they must fight as responsible citizens in a democratic society. That is one of the most important lessons we teach. Florida Parent has DeSantis on her side. Although Salinas admits she's only read snippets of the poem, she stands by her rant and even has Florida Governor and Republican Presidential Candidate Ron DeSantis on her side. He set the stage for her complaint in 2022 with HB 1467, which gives parents the power to complain about books in schools and calls for school districts to have a plan to deal with their issues. And last week, he publicly defended Ms. Salinas's careless complaint, calling the whole thing is much ado about nothing. The media, when they talk about book ban, understand that is a hoax. They are creating a false narrative he said at Florida Parent Educators Association Homeschool Convention in Orlando. This next one comes from the New York Times and was published originally May 23rd, written by Lola Fadulu. It was an all-black school in 1860. Today, it's a Manhattan landmark. New York City will provide $6 million in funding to rehabilitate the newly landmarked building, which for 34 years was home to a school for black children during segregation. The building at 128 West 17th Street has water damage and will need extensive repair. 
For years, New York City Department of Sanitation workers ate their lunch in a three-story yellow brick building on West 70, pardon me, West 17th Street in Chelsea without knowing its history. It was once a colored school that served black Americans during racial segregation in New York City public schools. On Tuesday, the city's Landmarks Preservation Commission voted to designate the building, which had been known as Colored School Number 4, a protected landmark, and city officials said they would provide $6 million to rehabilitate it. We stand on the soldiers, pardon me, we stand on the shoulders of the young men and women that attended this school, and while they may be gone, I am honored to ensure they will never be forgotten, Mayor Eric Adams said in a statement. The schoolhouse at 128 West 17th Street was built around 1849, and in 1860 it became one of eight public primary schools for black students in Manhattan. The schools served a total of 2,377 students. The building also housed an evening school for black adults. It was renamed Grammar School No. 81 in 1884 when the city's Board of Education stopped using the term colored in school names, but it continued to serve black children exclusively until the city closed segregated, pardon me, pardon me, segregated public schools 10 years later. The landmark designation comes as cities and states are grappling with how to address unsavory parts of American history, particularly black history, as modern-day inequities persist in education and elsewhere. While cities like New York appear to be moving towards speaking openly about the past, other places are heading in the opposite direction, fighting against the surfacing of such history by limiting how slavery and race are taught in American classrooms. Florida's Education Department, for example, rejected dozens of social studies textbooks this month in an effort to remove material on contested topics surrounding race and social justice. Sarah Carroll, the chair of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, said in a statement that the former colored school number four represented Quote, a difficult and often overlooked period in our city's history. The school closed in 1894, but the building remained city property and has been used for various purposes, including as a clubhouse for Civil War veterans. From 1936 to 2015, it was a satellite office and locker facility for the sanitation department. City officials estimated that repairs to the building, which has water damage, would take until 2027. They said they would work with agencies and local stakeholders to decide how it would be used. The landmark designation and funding for rehabilitation comes years after Eric K. Washington, an historian, began urging the city to protect the building. More than 2,800 people signed a petition in support of that. Mr. Washington learned about the school while researching James H. Williams, the chief porter of Grand Central Terminal's Red Caps a group of black men who worked at the station. Mr. Williams attended the former colored school number four and would have been one of its last students before it closed, said Mr. Washington. I feel delighted, pardon me, I feel delightfully exhausted, said Mr. Washington. He filed two requests with the Landmarks Commission to evaluate the site, the first in 2018, and he heard very little. My fingers are sore from being crossed all of the time, he said. 
Mr. Washington said that he was glad that the city was protecting the building at a time when others were making really concerted and mean efforts to erase and ban the teaching of black history, which he described as an essential part of American history. I think that the fact that this school and what it represents is being landmark in this major city will serve as an example to locales across the country, so I am thrilled in that regard, said Mr. Washington. While the sanitation department had expressed support for rehabilitating the school, a spokesman said last year that there were no funds to do so. Jessica Tisch, the sanitation commissioner, praised Mr. Adams for making a critical investment to preserve the school. She said officials would work to ensure future generations know both about the harm caused at this site and about the resilience of the New Yorkers who resisted that. A mob of working-class white people upset by the first federal draft and the fact that wealthier people were being allowed to evade it attacked the schoolhouse during the draft riots of July 1863. Teachers barricaded doors and the rioters eventually gave up. Sarah Tompkins Garnett, the school's principal, was instrumental in fighting back against that mob. She was one of the first black female principals in the New York City public school system. The school had several notable graduates, including Susan Elizabeth Frazier, who became the first black teacher working in an integrated public school, and Walter F. Craig, a classical violinist. At a time when states are trying to erase black history, we are celebrating it. Councilman Eric Botcher, whose Manhattan district includes Chelsea, said, adding that saving the building had been one of the neighborhood's top priorities. Another former colored school, number three, in Brooklyn, became a landmark in the late 1990s. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Community Foundation of Boulder County. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.